Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Sean Garrity, whose directorial credits include Inertia, Lucid, My Awkward Sexual Adventure, and Blood Pressure. His new drama, Borealis, starring Jonas Chernick and Joey King as a father and daughter on a desperate quest to see the Northern Lights in Manitoba, just played the Canadian Film Fest and opens in Toronto this Friday, April 8th. It'll be rolling into theaters across the country over the next few weeks. Sean picked Naked Lunch, which is, amazingly, the first time someone's brought a David Cronenberg movie to the podcast. But what a great place to start, right? Released in 1992, Naked Lunch marks the start of Cronenberg's second act, when he found the perfect angle to adapt William S. Burroughs' counterculture classic in the subjective storytelling format he'd only flirted with in Videodrome ten years earlier. As Peter Weller's drug-addicted exterminator Bill Lee plunges into the increasingly surreal landscape of the Interzone and his own psyche, Burroughs' book and Burroughs' own life story fuse into a strange new form, a new thing that we know as David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Quite literally, then, this is someone else's movie. I mean, there's so much to talk about with Naked Lunch, right? I mean, and it's one of those films that stuck with me uh, since I mean, since I saw it. I saw it, and, and uh, like you, after I saw it, I very quickly then saw it again. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to. Yeah, yeah, in a way, right? It takes you, like, one watch to sort of figure out what he's... But, I mean, in a way, it's a, it, it takes you one watch to have the kind of the burrows work on you, and then in the, it's like I feel on the second viewing, you sort of get a clearer view of where Cronenberg is in the mix. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting. But I've always thought it's just... I, since I've seen it, I, I think it is the single best adaptation I have ever seen. Of right? anything? Of burrows or of anything? No, of anything. Okay. I mean, there's so many films. I mean, there's, you know films in, in recent uh, Canadian history sure. where they take, uh, you know, a great novel and they just kind of copy and paste the prose into a screenplay format and then shoot it, yeah. uh, you know, with great deference to the original material. But there's no adaptation. I mean, there are different forms. And part of what makes the work great is its form. Um, and so I, I just I love the way that Cronenberg has taken the source material and really adapted it for the screen. Like it's very it's very much Burroughs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's very much Cronenberg. It's a it's a real adaptation. Um and you know, going over it again, I was I was also really excited about how it's you know, predates you know Kaufman's adaptation by fifteen years, yeah. right? But it is this metatextual like yeah, 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 yeah. watching the writer write the film that you're watching, kind of it's yeah. I mean, there, and there's in rewatching it, there's just so much going on, and there's just so much to talk about in there, and the different techniques of Burroughs that he kind of employs, and uh, the the journey of. Uh, of the viewer through the film, which kind of feels like, you know, what you'd be reading the original, uh, uh, work yeah. and yet using Burroughs life events as kind of this narrative glue, you're sort of, it gives you kind of a through line to stick with, which is kind of really necessary for, for cinema. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just tremendously tons and tons of very exciting stuff in the movie, I think. Yeah. It is one of those films that I've always held up as an example of a movie where someone says oh, this is a, this text is unadaptable and mm-hmm. this movie proves it like you cannot you can't actually argue that this is an adaptation of the book it's everything as well as the book and then fragments of the book bleeding into as you say into mm-hmm. into Burroughs's life and back and forth and it's done on a a level of complexity that i mean it was this was the the like the big indie boom had already started people were willing to accept new cinema. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Drugstore Cowboy had come out a few months earlier. The world was ready for hallucinatory drug stories. And yet this was just like... So I saw it in a, at the Cineplex screening room, this, this dinky little 35mm room in midtown Toronto with, I think, 30 seats. Mm-hmm. And it was a packed house, and it just played to silence. Like, we just <laughs> took it. Right. There was nothing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, and you can you could sort of giggle here and there, but not everyone laughed at the same jokes, which was sort of great. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, there was this moment of just absolute exhaling, where people just went, <gasps> and you you felt it leave the room, like you felt the movie end. Yeah. And and Cronenberg, you know, like he is a master of endings. He is a he is a 
phenomenal last framer. Mm-hmm. Um, he said famously in, in a Fangoria interview once about the Dead Zone, about how he wasn't going to put a happy face on it by saying, you know, like, I'm not afraid of movies that spiral into the inevitable darkness. And it's like, yeah, we know that now. <laughs> but but after you know, like after the, the three films previous, after Dead Zone and The Fly and Dead Ringers, you're just, you know, what is what is the ending to this? Where are we going to get out? Yeah. And when he lets you out, he actually does, he releases the audience without releasing the protagonist, which is such an amazing thing that he can do in that moment and just crush you, even though it's actually sort of okay. Like this is the moment where it becomes all right for William S. Burroughs to write his book. Mm -hmm. And all you are is glad to be away from it. Um, It's just, it's an incredible release and it's the kind of landing that he, he stuck and nobody else ever could and it was so fascinating to watch that perfect moment and this whole crowd of film critics who presumably I don't think anyone else had seen it either I think it was the first time we'd seen it collectively in Toronto and we were all just blown away by it Mm -hmm. and then I immediately wanted to go and see it again and I yeah, I did. Right, yeah. yeah. And on the second watch, it's so much richer. And then, you know, I'm, a few days ago, it was like my third watch of this film. And there's still, I'm, oh, you know, yeah. going through it going, well, look at all this other stuff that I hadn't seen on my first or second watch. Yeah. It is such a kind of a rich text, you know. And, yeah. and when you say funny, I mean... I have not seen a Cronenberg film funnier than this movie. Yeah, it's true. This is the one that has jokes all the way through. Yeah. Um, Like, History of Violence has some actual laughs early on, and The Fly is kind of funny right up until it breaks your heart. Right. And then just goes darker and darker and darker. But yeah, this one is the one where it's like... The thing that everyone says... Uh, when, about working with him is that he is really dryly funny. I've interviewed him a number of times, and he mm-hmm. is. He absolutely he can see the joke coming before you get to it. When right. you're talking in conversation, <laughs> he'll just sort of jump ahead and get to it. And this is the movie that feels most like a conversation with a filmmaker because he is totally aware that we are ideally totally aware of what he's doing. Like the manipulations are mm-hmm. right there on the surface, and and we're allowed to enjoy them. Like Crash is kind of funny too. But in yeah. a really uncomfortable way. Naked Lunch is much more blatantly like this is the story of a man who cannot deal with his homosexuality. <laughs> this is what he sees. He probably doesn't leave his apartment. And that you know that that extra level of textuality is is an accident because of the Gulf War. They could not go and film in in Morocco, which was their original plan. Oh, really? Yeah, they had to do it on sound stages here. Which you know, like Cronenberg is the most soundstage filmmaker anyway. Right. It's perfect for him to stay enclosed. And he had said that you know, like I don't know why we didn't think of it already. Like in the beginning, why do it didn't just hit us that no, of course he never leaves his apartment. We should stay there. But no, they were planning to shoot on location, and everything got um, just got scuttled by the by the outbreak of hostilities. Well, I thought that was a... I mean, I guess obviously it was a choice, but I mean, it felt like... Because I knew somebody who was shooting something while he was shooting it. Yeah. Talking about these elaborate Moroccan souks that he was building in these uh, in these sound stages. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah. is which is perfect for it. Um, but yeah, especially in the first act, uh, you know, the, the, the absolute deadpan reaction of his protagonist to the absolute the most absurd uh, creations that Cronenberg could throw at him and he just has the kind of a, the, the perfectly timed pause and then this dry little reaction it, it yeah it keeps you in stitches for I, for the first half for sure oh yeah now Peter Weller I mean we knew he was funny yeah um Bucker Banzai was years earlier and he had done Robocop which was this remarkable mime performance in the middle of this serious like serious ironic performance thing that he does in the middle of this great big satire um and then he comes out with this, and it's like bebop. Like, it's just like mm-hmm. watching him play jazz. Yeah. Um, the timing he has on that, just that slow burn about bug powder at the very beginning with Judy Davis. And it's just so weird and so great. <laughs> and and I, I feel that it's but almost like an extension of Peter Weller's performance. Uh, the, the other elements that are, are not, you know, absurd and bizarre mm-hmm. are so... Stand like it's not a darkly lit film. Yeah. Despite the material, it's very kind of it's lit a lot like a kind of a fifties sort of you know almost like a like a Hitchcock like those bright Hitchcock films. Yeah. Um, and you know the way that they're dressed and the set dressing, all of it is so kind of normal and bright and low key that to then have this dichotomy with all of this you know really dark weird material. Yeah. Is it almost like extends the reaction of Weller out into the set and out into the mise en scène that makes it, I think, I find it just very, very funny. Yeah, it's true. I mean, what can you do when faced with a typewriter with a 
talking anus. It just, you, I mean, it, it's, it's the movie. The movie actually gives you time for a double take. I think the way that it's introduced, you have the shot of Clark Nova and then a, a reaction shot, and then back to that thing, and it's a bit closer and a bit better lit. And yeah. Like, oh, okay. This is actually a thing that's happening. Yes. And and the film's absolutely not. Like it doesn't care if you aren't keeping up. That's what's so great about it. He, uh, for me, is that Cronenberg is just like, no, I got this. There's a confidence to the film that just sails past all of this bizarre. I mean, somebody shoots someone in the head in the first twenty minutes, and it kind of gets shrugged off, yeah, because nobody's really capable of responding to it. And it's not like the film itself is not narcotized. The film is completely aware of what's going on, but we are filtering our own reactions through the way because we look to the people we you yeah. know the, the audience looks to the actors to see how to respond to something and the tone is just so perfectly maintained that we have to wait we have to see where this goes because the, i don't think anybody knows in the film let's just write it out well and this is the other thing i think that makes it such an admirable film from my perspective and where i look at it and say oh my god this is a film that i love and want to talk about is this is how bold it is how daring it is to i mean this is not an inexpensive movie yeah right by canadian standards i mean it's a very big big film and that he would cronenberg would just so unapologetically make this film that really you kind of have to watch twice to just get into it yeah yeah. um you know i mean today who who do you have working at that i mean guy madden maybe madden right madden i mean almost he's just he's so disinterested in narrative like in conventional straight line narrative that I don't even know if he'd want to do something like this. Like the forbidden room is stories within stories within stories mm-hmm. within stories that just spiral back inwards. And then the joy of it is watching them come back out again. And with naked lunch, you really just go like to the classic Cronenberg line. You go all the way through it to the end and you see what's on the other side and then you're left there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like he simultaneously manages to hold your hand and abandon you in this world <laughs> at the same time and just say, okay, find you know, like, find your way out. I have cookies on the other side of the door. Right. Can you find the door? Yeah. Um, but it is like, so, okay. So I jumped ahead of my first, mm-hmm. my, the question I wanted to ask, which was what was, when did you first see it? How old were you? Like what point in your development did you see? Oh yeah. I was, uh, I would have been, um, was I out of university yet? I was not out of university yet. Um, and so I was, uh, I was in school and I saw it in a theater. Okay. Um, and I just was completely again blown away by it and, and, and how again how daring it was and how unexpected it was and um, but it had a lot of elements that I was just really inter- I'm very interested in very literary films um, which you know this is quite literally a literary sure. film. Yeah. Um, and and I was very interested in you know this kind of exotic the, the travel films the films that take place like a lot of those old Hitchcock films did in some you know in Morocco and wherever else and right. and so all of those things had me go to see it actually I may have even seen it now I'm thinking 1991 I may have actually seen it in South America I lived in South America for two years doing film school okay. in, in Buenos Aires and I think part of why I saw it was also because it was a Canadian film so uh, you just drawn I was just like it's a Cronenberg film it's a Canadian film I'm going to go see it um, and then those other things kind of dawned on me when I watched it. Okay. Um, it's, well, how did the room take it? Like, how did it play? Do you have a, like, do, a vivid memory of it? No, I do not. Yeah. Uh, I do not remember how the room took it. No. I mean, I, I saw it with my film student buddies. Uh, I do remember that. And, okay. and uh, they were as jazzed by I was, you know, as I was by the... the the newness of all of it, the kind of the, the imagery and the stuff that left, like, I mean, it's a film that leaves you talking, right? Because you're kind of talking yourself down from the experience as well as just kind of, I think, unraveling the text. Yeah, um, it's exactly. You, if I, if I had seen it alone, I think I would have just gone and curled up in a fetal position somewhere. You, you <laughs> need to get it out. You need to talk it through. Yeah. And, um, yeah. How, so how long was it before you saw it again? Or did, was it? No, very, it was like within a week like or a two. Rank, yeah. yeah. Like I, I wanted to see it again right away. Yeah. Uh, and so I saw, I saw it a second time, you know, in cinemas. And then I think I read something about it. Um, and, you know, and subsequently what I became most excited about, which wasn't my initial thing, of course, was this, again, the adaptation and the incorporation of, of, you know, not only the the imagery from Naked Lunch and some of the narrative events from Naked Lunch, but then later on I discovered, you know, even Burroughs, his, his cut-up technique and his intention of how, you know, readers would experience his books. And mm-hmm. certainly on a first watch, I think there's a lot of that experience for the viewer of the film. Yeah, I was actually going to ask if you were familiar with Burroughs beforehand, because I wasn't quite as familiar. I mean, I knew who he was, and mm-hmm. I had read... 
I think I'd read Junkie, but that was it. And I'd seen him in Drugstore Cowboy, which was that beginning of his renaissance. All of the film Naked Lunch was already underway when, when mm-hmm. that film was released. And yeah, it's the the adaptation becomes even more impressive when you actually understand where it's coming from because that book is not filmable. I mean, I, I already said that, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm right. It's uh, it's not incomprehensible, but if you actually did that movie, it would be. I think Cronenberg said this. It would have been like. 70 million dollars and it would have been five hours long and no one would want to see it right i'm sure i'm getting those numbers wrong but but it was similar to that and it's and he's right there is like it's not possible but mm-hmm. maybe it is now maybe hbo could do it you know like as a, a mini series <laughs> right but then who would watch but a, it but a palatable idea a palatable adaptation of that film as, of that book as is probably impossible mm-hmm. if, unthinkable well but yeah palatable for sure and i mean again we get into this question of adaptation right i mean I think all of those, like when Cronenberg's saying an actual adaptation or an adaptation, he means, again, taking the text, dumping it into a screenwriting program, and then just trying to shoot it. Yeah. Which for me is not really, I mean, it's not, there's no real adaptation there. It's yeah. almost like just a straight translation from one medium to another. Right. And that would be just people getting high in rooms. It would be boring. Yeah. Like I think. Right. I mean, I mean, part of what makes the book, I haven't read the book. Um, but part of what one, one assumes makes a great book great is the fact that it's a book yeah. and that your experience of it is the experience of reading a book. And that's a very particular kind of experience. And it's very different from seeing a movie. And I, you know, I, I, I have long sort of, uh, I've been involved in a couple of projects in development where we're adapting from another, from another medium. Mm-hmm. And I've just been very adamant always that, you know, to adapt means to change. And that's just absolutely necessary if you're moving from one to the other. Yeah. I mean, it should be ultimately the only, I mean, even, you know, Elmore Leonard's a great example of somebody who wrote fantastic dialogue, but you still have to prune it. You still have to shape it. You have to know what will work cinematically, which is why you can point to Leonard films that work and Leonard films that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, Burroughs for a book about heroin and, mm-hmm. and opiates, it's really, it's got this jittery energy and it, part of that is the narrative and part of it is the reader trying to figure out how pieces fit together. And yeah. you're, you're active, you're an active reader the whole time. You need to know what's going on. Right. An experience that's exactly the same with the movie. Yeah. Obviously, right? And I mean, the film is... just hold, like straps you down for two hours and throws things at you that you have to put together. But it does find a tone and a narrative strategy that's right. Like it feels like the book, even though it's, an inquiry into the book. Yeah, this is the thing, right? It's almost like an homage to the to the book in a way. Yeah, uh, that references the at the same time. It's almost like it's got a DVD behind the scenes feel like the life of William Burroughs yeah, as yeah. part of the film, uh, which is just part of what makes it you know incredible. Yeah, and the crazier it gets, the stranger the imagery gets, the more you know profane and and scatological, and then just weird. The, the patterns emerge and you can understand it. And then the second time it plays like a comedy uh, because you're, you know it's okay. And this is a, this is a thing that constantly uh, comes back to me as a, as a film goer, as, a, as just as somebody who watches movies, that there's always a second viewing of a great film is going to be more entertaining, even if it's tragedy, because you can relax. Mm-hmm. And you know that and, you know, I could go see the example I always use is Gross Point Blank, where I spent the first two thirds on the edge of my seat going, please don't fuck this up. Right. Like, please come out the other end. I know this is great. Just keep going and don't blow the ending. And it found a way through and it was fantastic. And right. Galaxy Quest or um, uh, The Force Awakens even more recently, mm-hmm. where it's just suddenly, oh, they, they know what they're doing. And, yeah. and then the second time you go see it, you don't have that hesitation. Right. You can just savor it. Yeah. Right. And you know you're... it's going to be great. I, I mean, I took people to see Naked Lunch. Uh, I think I must have seen it three or four times theatrically. The second and thir- the second time was another press screening. It's one of the only films I've seen twice before it even opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, I think, was The Tall Guy, uh, right around the same time, because I had the time to see movies <laughs> twice if I wanted to. Uh, but um, I would take people who hadn't seen it and kind of just listen to them watch the film for the first time, because that was really fascinating in its own way. Right. It's, um you know, it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, I'm probably a little bit of a sociopath. I want to watch. I want to. I want to feel your tears. I want to see how you experience this. But it is just a remarkable movie to throw at people because how do you process that the first mm-hmm. time? And then you get to figure out how you, how I, I got to figure out how I processed it. And it's such an un, unyielding work. Mm-hmm. Like the first time through, it gives everything up on set on repeat viewings. And as soon as you understand the larger concept, which clicks the first time through yeah, uh, everything opens up but it is just one of those movies that says no no you 
you have to come to me. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dumb this down. I'm not gonna make this easy. And that like that's that second phase of Cronenberg's career that started with Dead Ringers, where he just didn't care about yep. making something accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, nor should he have, because he was going in a direction that just wasn't gonna have that. Right. But so. and, and yet very Cronenberg. I mean I saw yeah. I saw this interview with him that has always sort of stuck with me. I went through a real Cronenberg phase. And read, oh, how can you be a Canadian filmmaker? <laughs> and not have yeah. read his book and you know went back and saw the films that I hadn't seen and uh, and there was and I saw an, actually an interview with him where he said that for him a monster wasn't really scary. That's not really horror for him. A monster mm-hmm. that's action for him. Horror is when you are the monster right. or you become the monster. And I always looked at that as his kind of central, like as an auteur. You sort of take that then and you go back to each one of his films and you apply it and you're like, oh, yeah, fits, fits, history of violence. It fit like every single film. That concept seems to have a central place. Yeah. Uh, and this one as well, right? This guy sort of realizing gradually aspects of himself that he at first finds monstrous and then has to embrace. Yeah. And there is that embracing of the monstrous all the way through the film, all these elements that he introduced and, and that are horrible, like the typewriter and the mugwumps and everything else. Eventually, I mean, one of the things that I love about a lot of Cronenberg, especially that phase of Cronenberg, you know, Crash and whatever else, is that he he starts you at a place that is universal, brings you in step by step, and you find yourself, you know, an hour into his film watching someone, for example, in this case, you know, sucking liquid out of the right. head tentacle of a mugwump, and you're like, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like it's about polite. the right That's thing. That's what you do. Sure. Yeah. yeah it, you know, it, it a, he brings you to a place where stuff that is just out there seems completely normal and you can derive sense and sort of meaning out of it without shock. Yeah, I think that his strength as a filmmaker is that even before that, like he, he well, no, Naked Lunch I think is the first time that it really uh, flowered, this thing he'd been doing, which is the the bulk of horror films or psychological thrillers will have a normal character mm-hmm. in the peripheral uh, action. There will be a friend or a relative who says, you know, like, this isn't right, this isn't you, listen to yourself. And it is, it's not a cheap device, it's expected. It's mm-hmm. just, it's it's required by the genre at this point to have, like, a, a, a lodestone to show people how far the character, you know, like, Dr. Frankenstein, really? <laughs> um, you know, when we were at school together, there's always that character. And it's right there through the fly and even Dead Ringers has Claire Niveau who says like I'm not putting up with this anymore and leaves and precipitates the actual third act tragedy which is the entire movie <laughs> uh, but but Naked Lunch for the first time I think I mean it's for the first time he dispenses with it but I think that Bill Lee is that character that's right. the function he serves to himself um, he is the scientist experimenting on himself like Seth Brundle mm-hmm. but he's also the guy going oh that's probably not a great idea to shoot this stuff up. Uh, right. Maybe not. And then do it anyway and see what happens and write the report. He's his own auditor um, of the experience, which is so weird. And then stuff like Crash or even in Butterfly, there's no one who's telling the prime. Right, there's no one with them. No one I mean, with the protagonist you, going, ah. you, you could argue in Naked Lunch that the Ginsburg Kerouac characters—I can't remember their names—actually in the in the in the film. oh the ones who show up and leave yeah, yeah. They are to a certain extent are like that but they're either so periodic in it and even they're at the edge right I mean they're there yeah. having sex with his wife and you know shooting bug powder at the beginning and yeah my first thought is is Inholm's Bull's character but no he's all the way in like, he's, <laughs> he's ahead of him com- yeah he's completely in um, even though he doesn't seem that way the lovely classic Cronenberg when you first meet him he doesn't seem that way yeah but then the more you discover about him the more monstrous he becomes. But you're right, and I think part of it that's that's great is that usually when you see a character in a film that's kind of lost, there's a certain viewpoint from the outside, right. and, and we get access to their emotional distress. But you don't get lost with them in the way that we get lost with the protagonist in this film. Like I think part of why he seems so on top of it and allows us in so much is because we're we're completely lost with right along with him. Yeah. We're kind of looking around going, what it's the typewriter is talking to me and this is so odd. Yeah. Right? Um and there's there isn't that sense of stepping back from him and looking at him from the outside that would encourage passing you know, judgment passing or whatever else. You're like yeah. you're right in there with him, right inside the the labyrinth. Yeah. It's sort of a precursor in a way structurally to existence, which is somebody staggering around trying to figure out what things mean. Yeah. And having the audience 
be kind of at the same level. Like we're just we're with Lee. We're not ahead of him at any point. I mean, towards the end, I think once once you click, once you understand what he's seeing and why, then you can start to make sense of things just before he figures them out. But mm-hmm. then you get to watch him catch up, which is even funnier because Peter Weller can do that. Right. Just, like he can, his eyes go dark and light up, or, or just his eyes go dim and then light up again in a really delightful way. Yeah. Which is the only word I can think of for his performance in this film. Uh, man was born to wear those hats and suits. And <laughs> totally. God doesn't know it. <laughs> that makes you, like when you're watching the film, you start to think, how would people take me if I walked around in that thing? Because that yeah. looks really good. Yeah. That's like a comfortable, lovely looking suit. Why yeah. do people wear those anymore? It is kind of remarkable that Naked Lunch makes heroin chic (laughs) look stylish as opposed to grunge. I mean, it looks great. Yeah. Um, The costumes are the costumes are phenomenal, but they're also part of the construction, the idealization of his situation. Because probably he doesn't look that good. No. Well, Uh, that's it. And there are a couple of. I mean, I only noticed on this watch that there are a couple of because I guess he's green screening out the window. Or I'm not sure if this movie is old enough that he's actually using matte paintings out there. Probably a couple of them, a couple of mats, and man, there might have been some green screen. I mean, they, it was in use; it was around. Right. Certainly, if, it, if the film was as expensive as that, and it would have seemed like a cheaper solution than shooting in Tangier. Right. Yeah. Of um, course. But I mean, so most of the time you're looking out the window at Tangier. But I just noticed on this last watch that there's a moment where he goes over to the Ian Holmes character's apartment, and they're in Tangier. But when he goes to the window, it's New York City. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, not a mistake. Yeah. Of course very, not. Very no, clearly. <laughs> A little tip of the hat, like he doesn't he shoot up immediately after that, like he's coming down, or am I misremembering? It's been about a year since I've seen that. Last it time. was is no, he's he's there to he doesn't shoot up right after that. He's there trading the typewriters. Okay, right. So he's, he's already passed that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got so he's got a, the mugwump head typewriter. He's trading it for his original. Right. Uh, who, who then Cronenberg goes on to deliver this touching lovely death scene for yeah. this with with music Clark, and Clark Nova yeah. <laughs> and this cockroach talking out of its asshole and he delivers it this beautiful scene of that's great yeah and again like there is no there is no boundary we're we're with him we're we're not outside of that scene the second time i guess we are but the first time through it's just like no this is weirdly moving mm-hmm. and this hideous thing is sort of not hideous by that point, anymore. it's his best friend. Yeah. It's like, it's our best. He's been with us since the beginning of the movie, like, unlike every other character. Yeah, it's like a puppy. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, hideous, hideous puppy. <laughs> but that, like, that has always been his strength, too, as a filmmaker, is to take you into the most profane... Uh, not, mutilation's the wrong word, but the, the most profane use of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even... I mean, I saw... Crimes of the Future in stereo in a theater once at the Blur. Wow. Yeah, the 16mm screenings, it would have been like the mid-90s probably. Mm-hmm. And the sound was terrible and the prints weren't in the best shape, but people were into it. Like, you, you I assume you've seen them by now. These are no, the, the one-hour films. Prince. Oh, they're, no. they're, they're on Blu-ray now. They're, mm-hmm. they're around. Uh, they've been relatively well restored. And one of the things in Crimes of the Future is that this character... Um, has created a guy, Dr. Antoine Rouge, or Anton Rouge, has created a disease called Rouge's malady, which is a thing where people become sexually um, frantic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. They, they go into this sort of seizures and excrete fluids mm-hmm. from their nose and mouth, and other people are compelled to lick them, to right. lick, the, lick the fluids. Not the person necessarily, but right, the right. stuff. And it's it becomes this weird there's a moment where you're either with the story or you're not and a character does it in the most kind of exaggerated physicality and the room people don't laugh at it you kind of want to but then you think well at this point i guess i could see that happening like you're just in that world and you don't you can't get out he takes you in step by... He meets yeah. you at the door at the beginning of the movie and then just takes you into that dark room step by step, right? Yeah. It's a remarkable thing that he's always done. Like, he treats this stuff with this flatness, with this sort of documentary approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that in my head is amplified by the fact that he shot... He protected for full frame, so if you saw stuff on VHS, you didn't feel like you were missing anything. You were looking at a, an open matte image instead of a pan and scan frame. Right. He's never shot in scope, and he's always made sure his films would look right mm-hmm. he, at 133 even in 178 now with dvd and blu-ray that's no longer an issue everything looks like it's supposed to look but there is a, a confidence of composition even in the worst presentation where you just think this shit is happening like this is this is all happening in yeah. front of the camera and the fact that he uses practical effects whenever possible even now um puppets and things in in uh, history of violence for people getting bludgeoned mm. he he doesn't shy away from 
letting his actors have a tactile interaction with whatever's going on, and that somehow connotes to physical behavior that we believe. So, Well, for sure. If it's Peter real Weller, for the actor in the moment, yeah. it's, it's going to be real, right? So Peter Weller and Ian Holm and, and Roy Scheider uh, unzipping <laughs> himself out of people, it's just, it's all happening. And yeah. so why wouldn't we believe it? And you've already created this universe where I'm buying it, and the and again the score too, which we didn't even talk, which we've mm. been meaning to talk about the the uh, the fusion of Howard Shore, uh, his his sort of strings of dread that he does, with Ornette Coleman being just absolutely manic. Yeah, very kind of the, the, yeah, but sort of the the soundtrack of the Beat Generation though in a way. Yeah, right? that sort of yeah. Forty years later, he brings that to life in a really immediate way that makes you a hostage. Mm. Like, it doesn't matter if you don't buy it; it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's all for me very much part of putting you right back into, you know, within two minutes of that film. I'm like, I'm, I'm in 1955 and I'm part of the beat generation in New York City. Like, I'm there. Yeah. It is a, it's a remarkable accomplishment on virtually every level and the fact that it was made in Toronto by someone who had just had like three back-to-back commercial successes. Mm-hmm. It feels like this was the only time he could have done it. And he'd been wanting to do it for a long time. Like there's, there's a number of books that he had struggled to adapt historically. Crash was another one where it's just like the line, the, the, the fortune had to miss. No. He had the misfortune of not being able to get them produced the first time through. And he was going to work on Total Recall and it would have starred Richard Dreyfuss in mm-hmm. 1983. And that didn't happen. And so he made the dead zone, which let him make the fly, which let him make dead ringers. And then finally naked lunch. And he had a shot and people didn't quite get it on a global scale. So he went and did M butterfly cause that was respectable, but that was too weird. So then he went back to crap. Like there's that window in the nineties where he just did whatever the hell he wanted yeah. and had to, I, I like, you feel like you're watching a guy burn himself at both ends to, to tell these specific stories at this particular point in his career. And naked lunch was like the first salvo of, it really feels like the moment where yeah. things kind of turn, like that he it was all has always been a very intelligent filmmaker, but it's you know it's hard to get taken seriously as an intelligent filmmaker with something to say when you're making like rabid yeah. and shivers, and it's kind of like how long is the journey out that it feels like he you know he sort of just decides to accelerate things in yeah. a way with Naked Lunch. Because uh, there was that long period where he was, at, it seemed like every time you turned around, he was at con, and, yeah. and you were like, "What? The he guy who made those like, and he was, yeah, the well, sex is, bug movies, or he, now he's at con." Yeah. Well, this is the 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 luck of working with people he did when he did, and having government support, and so instantly being controversial mm. uh, in Canada, where we simply did not do such things. Um, like Shivers is about the sexual revolution. It's just, it happens to have parasites in it, right. and, and people getting smashed in the head. Uh, but I like, I saw Shivers. Um, two years ago, I guess, when, when TIFF had its big Cronenberg restoration right. and, and uh, retrospective, they had the restoration of Shivers, which had just been done in Quebec, mm-hmm. uh, maybe three years ago now. And it is amazing how solid a film that is. Like, given the opportunity to make his first feature and do it for the tax shelters and do it, basically all you needed was nudity and violence and you could make any movie you wanted in Canada mm. at that time, in Montreal especially, where he shot it. And he told a story that is, like, from scene to scene, really well put together, really smart, funny, clever, intelligent, takes its time revealing. Like, it's a movie. It's not yeah. It's not exploitation. It's a really interesting film. And he's, like, this fully formed intellect as yep, a filmmaker. Absolutely, yeah. And then he made Rabid, which is a fantastic zombie movie that predates like the fast zombie films of the '90s and, and present day. And then The Brood, which is his like you know he calls it his Kramer versus Kramer because he was going through a divorce <laughs> and it's the the externalization of all of that. And then Scanners, which is commercial, and then Videodrome, which is so not. Uh, and then the studio pictures, and then he just arrives at Naked Lunch, and it feels organic. But yeah, yeah it feels like a turning point where it's like this is. I, I showed you what I want, what I can do. I'm going to show you what I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is that 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 feeling that nobody in any room, any ever, got listened to, and they said, you know, what's the target demographic for this? If he's be like, yeah, whatever. We need a four quadrant hit. Yeah, uh, this one has talking cockroach assholes. Oh well, then. Um, <laughs> can you make it less gay? No. Well, okay, let's just keep going. Like it just keeps going. It will not stop to think about an audience's consideration, which makes it even more compelling because Absolutely. it does not care what you want. And in the context of a number, like a number of other films in English Canada, they're kind of 
treading similar territory, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what another thing, you know, another of the many things that is so fascinating about Cronenberg is that his the history of his filmmaking, it becomes apparent when you read that that book of his is kind of the history of English Canadian cinema. I mean, yeah, okay. fiction narrative cinema, uh, feature length, you know, which sort of gets reborn whatever in the late 60s. But he just every time it sort of changes and now it's tax shelters and now it's you know whatever these dentist films and now it's sort yeah. of whatever else he's there kind of leading the charge and you sort of by watching his films and reading his history you sort of get a picture of how our film industry evolved yeah I mean he demonstrated that it could be profitable he wasn't you know he wasn't making meatballs he wasn't making films that were co-productions or, or local shoots that then became studio babies. He mm-hmm. made his own movies and then he made studio films and then he went back to making his own movies. But he is, like, he was right at the center of all of this, even starting in Montreal and then moving back to Toronto to shoot, to make his films uh, the way he wanted to. He's been working with the same people for 40 odd years. Mm-hmm. He continues to draw talent. Um, I'm less enamored of his most recent work, uh, but there's still like history of violence is among the best things he's ever done. It's yeah. just after that, it gets a little, uh, almost a little stayed. He's sort of drifted away from the fantastical or even the, you know, like the monster in a dangerous method is female sexuality infecting psychotherapy, which is fine, but it's sort of a defining the story as intellectual and it doesn't really break beyond that. Right. Things like that. And, and I just don't think maps to the stars works at all, but <laughs> I'm still going to show up for the next thing he does. Cause he is capable of, of doing literally anything he wants yeah. he puts his mind to it and yeah. there yeah there really is nobody else I and mean, you've got the closest person to compare him to is probably Norman Jewison who was hugely successful in America and thus beloved in Canada even though you know, like he only shot he only made one Canadian film and it was the statement everything else he may have shot here but it was doing it for the US and a director who is not particularly distinct in a vision like you you look at a Cronenberg movie and there's no one else who could have made it even Maps to the Stars there's nobody else who could have right. made this movie that way right and he is such a weird iconic force in Canadian cinema that like I would imagine it's pretty intimidating to just step on that landscape as a filmmaker like you've you've worked in a number of genres mm-hmm. and like how does that do you do you have to stop and make sure he hasn't done this first? Is there ever, like is there is it intimidating? <laughs> well, yeah, Cronenberg is for sure, and it's weird that you don't see a lot of you know. I mean, after Adam McGowan, there were a bunch of you know pseudo mini Adam McGowans right. who kind of Chilly, and certainly in, in Winnipeg you see a lot of people very influenced by Guy Madden's work sure. who are doing that. But I haven't really seen a bunch of mini Cronenbergs walking around in Canada, sort of trying to trying to imitate the great masters' yeah. work, which is interesting. I wonder if it's because he is so intimidating and singular in that sense it's possible i mean toronto is such a small town for filmmaking that it is possible that people just go "Mm, he's gonna get mad at me (laughs) but at the same time if you try to knock off cronenberg you get scanners too like you get really bad misinterpretations right i would maybe hold up vincenzo natale right uh, because splice is heavily cronenbergian to like to the point where it sort of plays with that once or twice but it's also so clearly its own animal yeah um he has different obsessions and different interests, but he's the only other filmmaker in, in terms of genre who is working in sort of the same territory. And I think he also knows exactly where he is in relation to Cronenberg and the two. There's a, there is a chasm that he will not like. He doesn't want to cross. He'll be more absurd. He'll do stuff like nothing, which nobody saw, but is delightful. Right. Um, and he, you know, like the work he did on Hannibal is actually pretty Cronenbergian. Yeah, in a well, weird way. You know, Cronenberg takes you so. Like he right into the heart of the horror. Like you're you're right in the middle of it. It's yeah. not chasing you. You're not hiding from it. You're not hoping it doesn't hear you breathing as it walks by. Yeah. Like you're just in the middle of it. Um, and I, I yeah, I don't see a lot of other filmmakers, not just in Canada, anywhere, yeah. who, who are doing work at that level. I wonder if it's simply an understanding. Like, and this is something that Cronenberg totally gets. It's like an understanding of consequence. You know, like everybody says that science huge breakthroughs are never eureka moments. It's somebody going, oh, that's weird, mm-hmm. and doubling, you know, like doing the experiment again and seeing what happens when the thing grows on the bread and, and following down this heart medication, which makes people have erections that last for four hours and <laughs> have to call your doctor. And and that's how discoveries happen. It's never. Nobody wakes up and goes, this is the cure for, right. you know, dropsy. Uh, I don't even know what dropsy is. It's just funny. Um, it's something. I've it heard is, of it. It's, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. Um, but, but with Cronenberg, it's the other thing. It's the accidental discovery of, of something truly awful 
that becomes seductive. So it is, this is interesting. Oh, my fingernails are falling off, but let's see where this goes. Like there's a sense of an embrace of, of change, uh, forced or, or chosen, like embraced. And, And both of those things happen in Naked Lunch because someone is profoundly altering his life because he's fucked up, but he's also getting fucked up to alter his life. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a weird synergy that is absolutely terrible for everyone around this guy. <laughs> but he is pursuing it. He like he's yeah. following himself down the hole. That's it. He's becoming Yeah. Right? There's that act of becoming that is so central to a lot of Cronenberg's work. Yeah. Like in, in Videodrome it is not something anyone embraces. Like Max Wren is is terrified and, and and sickened and horrified to go through what he goes through until he becomes programmed to like it. Yeah. Uh, in The Fly, there's sort of a dementia that happens. I mean, the character even discusses it about how this is just, the fly's going to wake up and the man is going to go away. And then you have scanners where the, the two sides of this power are represented by the, by the two characters. And then you have Naked Lunch where all of it is contained inside Peter Weller's deadpan. Yeah. And somehow the movie lets us see it. Like, we can read him even when he's doing nothing. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, one of my favorite lines in the film that, to describe the experience of the film is uh, his typewriter talks to him and says, uh, you know, you've been doing this for us and you've been doing that for us. Yeah. And Peter Weller's like, what? I have no memory of any of that. And the typewriter says, well, an unconscious agent is yeah. the very best kind of agent. Yeah. It's such a great line. Like, you sort of watch the film, and you're like, right, that's what's happening. That's what I'm watching. Yeah. And of course, if he is nodding off, like the calling the heroin addiction is on the nod, right? So he is literally a sleeper agent. He just. He, yeah. He doesn't get it. We don't get it at first. Just the images that he's processing are clearly some sort of hallucination, but maybe they're just real. Maybe it's all just there. Um, I mean, I, God knows, I've met mugwumps. I've, I've, we saw them in fiberglass, cast in the exhibit in, right. in, in the light box at the time. I have a photograph of myself with one. Uh, it's, it, it's the most normal thing in the world to sit down at a stage next to that thing mm-hmm. because the movie said it was okay. I, yeah. I saw it. It must be real. And the way that it's introduced. Yeah. Oh, I have a friend of mine you'd like to meet. He turns and there's that mugwump sitting in the bar and Weller's reaction, which isn't... Yeah. It's just nothing. It's he's like, not oh, horrified. It's a... He's not laughing. And nope. the same thing played in the theater with us. We were just like, all right. <laughs> what does it do? <laughs> What's it going to do now? Where is this movie going to take us? Um, and it took people places that they didn't necessarily want to go and weren't necessarily ready for. It was It was received with great fervor by critics and some audience members mm-hmm. but generally it was i mean i remember the coverage at the time where was a lot of people just sort of saying oh it's that weird movie he made a weird movie right and that was somehow the end of the discussion all of his movies are weird movies you can't you can't just dismiss them but people were not quite ready to put it in the canon i would say for a while it was the it was the thing he made after the conventional movies right and then and butterfly which when it played at tiff was just sort of received as an oh yeah okay Right. He made. A, he went back to working with irons. He he picked a more normal frame. It's not. I mean, no. the film's seething with weirdness, but it's all sublimated. So with Naked Lunch, it all comes out, and then M. Butterfly, almost exactly the same story. It's about a man deluding himself into being someone else. Yeah. Uh, and believing in alternate reality, which we, I think it's undermined a little bit by the casting of John Lone, simply because he looks so masculine, as opposed to what B.D. Wong did on stage, mm-hmm. where you can you know, you're you're far removed. Film is much more unforgiving. You you are much less forgiving. You're stuck there with him. And you can tell this is a dude. Yeah. But it almost doesn't matter because Irons plays it so flatly again. Like he's not flatly, he plays it so nonchalantly that of course this is a woman because I I want her to be. Yeah. Um and it's the same thing. Like it's the same dynamic. It's almost the same arc. Right. It just ends far more tragically. Uh, because it has to, because it's an opera, because it's stylized in the end. And Naked Lunch doesn't give you that. Naked Lunch is jazz. Naked Lunch doesn't stop where you want it to stop, and it doesn't start where you want it to start, because then it would make more sense of it. Right. But you're just bouncing through it, and, you know, let's see where we go. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. Like jazz and like the books themselves, right? Yeah. It's just this happens, and then that happens, and then this happens, or or does it? Yeah. Something's happening. <laughs> uh, and, and again, the casting is something he's always been able to do, is get remarkable actors mm. and use them precisely as they should be. I mean, James Woods was a little squirrely guy when he made Videodrome. He hadn't really been in anything truly 
I guess he made the onion field by that point, but I'm thinking about the way he was using stuff like eyewitness where he just sort of turned up. He was a character actor. Yeah. And put him in video drum and you cannot look away. He is magnetic yeah. in his squirrely weirdness. Uh walk-in dead zone, I don't yeah. know that he's ever been better. Right. Yeah, um, he's fantastic. It is and he's playing a romantic lead, which he never got to do. Mm-hmm. Uh but Cronenberg's just like, Yep, you can do this. And he can. Yeah. Um you get like the Sheen was fantastic in that film. Like every, everybody yeah, he's worked with in Goldblum and, and Davis and even even John Getz and The Fly, everybody. It's a three character piece and they're all great. And then this gives you Peter Weller uh, in a way that you really haven't seen him before, but kind of defines him for the next ten years of his career. Like, he's, oh, did it really? I think so. Like he uh-huh. made the New Age after that with Davis, right? Uh, their, their little, their bizarre little reunion. Uh, this Michael Tolkien film that nobody remembers. I think I don't even know if it's on DVD. I know I have the Laserdisc. I just found it the other day. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those performances where it shows you a new angle on the actor. Yeah. Um, and you know, after RoboCop he chose to do and, and he made that terrible Sam Elliott movie Shakedown around the same time but he chose to work with Cronenberg and just kills it he yeah. is just so good he and, is yeah and you feel this confidence in the, that the film has in him that it knows he can do anything and so he does nothing like it just it ratchets him all the way down to this incredible minimalist performance I mean I think there is a laugh when he moves his eyes at one point just kind of shifts his gaze this is it and, it, and it's kind of a, a a Herculean effort to be so minimal in yeah. the face of what that movie throws at him, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it's it's kind of a massive, big acting job as opposed to being minimal. And it, you know, there's a lot of times you hear this phrase that you know, you know this this uh, actor can really carry a feature. You know, this this actor really carries this movie. But you watch the movie, and you know. They've got them running through the rain in a wide shot with a big symphonic score to yeah. express that they're sad. And you're like, well, how much is that actor really carrying yeah, this movie? He's but, the star. That's how that works. Exactly. But in this case, I mean, it really is like Weller carries that film. Yeah. Right. Without that exact pitch perfect performance, it, it's a very different movie. Yeah. No, what he does with his, like, what he does with his shoulder pads, what he does with his hat, like, it's all craft mm. and it's it's amazing i've never actually gotten to talk to him and he's one of those guys on the list where there are three or four iconic roles that i would love like there's this and bonsai and it sounds stupid but of unknown origin um mm. this is awful canadian film canadian tax shelter picture uh, right. directed by george p cosmatos uh before rambo or just after right where he is an architect who tears his house apart because he's convinced there's a rat in the wall and that's it. That's the movie. That's the he film. alienates his family and he drives his wife crazy and, or his girlfriend and, and finally it is a monster rat. And it is, again, one guy doing one thing for the entire film. He does this feverish commitment. And that's his. That's the role. But it's mesmerizing. It's not a good movie. Right. Uh, and Cosmatos does him no favors with the framing and he makes him look all sweaty and weird. But he throws himself in so fully that it became thrilling to watch him yell at puppets. Like, it doesn't matter right. what's going on. You're, you're there for the performance, and it's incredibly compelling. And it's just, this guy is losing his mind, and the actor is committing to this incremental slide into mania. Um, and it's, like, nobody knows about it. I think it's come out on DVD in some weird Warner quadruple box of weird, you know, like, here are mm-hmm. some monster movies we think you might be able to buy together. Right. Uh, it has no place in any discussion of serious cinema. <laughs> it's not a good film. And they reshot the ending and the monster rat is just dumb. But, he's great. Like, he does not condescend to the material and at no point does he kind of wink to the to the monster. It's mm-hmm. all, it's Kurt Russell in the thing. You buy it. Right. And now let's see what happens. And the, I, I want to believe on some level that that was what told Cronenberg that he could do it, that he yeah. could be his Bill Lee. But yeah, he saw the film and he was like, this is yeah. the guy who can... You can act with puppets and you can sell that. Yeah. Let's let's see what you do with a mugwump and, and we're going to get a little... Uh, we're going to get a little weird. Right. Yeah, I get a little weird, but you're just going to be like, yep. And yeah. we hope that the audience will... T- that'll get them halfway there. Yeah, because it's the opposite of what he does in Naked Lunch. He's not blasé at all. He is, he is not playing the cool of it. Mm-hmm. He is frenzied and, and unhinged. But it's such a... It's a you know, I can't believe I'm actually talking about this thing 30 years later. It's a, it's not a movie you would remember except for the actor in it. Hmm. Um, yeah, of unknown origin. Right. Not good. <laughs> but Peter Weller is fantastic. If anybody wants to come on and defend of unknown origin, good luck finding it. Uh, but yeah, he's he is to the film. He is as important to the film as Cronenberg is, I think. For sure. Um, and, and then there's the rest of the actors who are all really great. Um, 
and and somehow fluid in my mind. I always forget Judy Davis is in as much of the film as she is. Right. Because to my mind, she drops out after the first reel. Except, of course, she keeps coming back. Yes. Yeah, but, she keeps coming back. Yeah. But all of them play it so straight. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Look at Ian Holmes' character. Uh, and I mean, you love that guy in yeah. everything that he's in. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, all sorts of... You monsters and drug addiction and sodomy and aliens happening all over the place and he gets upset when his typewriter gets broken yeah like it's the only moment in the film where he gets really really upset um yeah it's yeah it's it's, it's uh, it yeah. suddenly makes it all so mundane yeah right it's almost the kind of thing that I mean it's it's clearly scripted and it's part of the structure of the film but it feels like a, a choice by a method actor mm-hmm. you know the, the guy who won't put down the cigarette or the guy who refuses to stop flipping through a book it's just this weird little piece of fixation that feels so human and real that you buy the rest of it because yeah. of course well yeah it, it was his typewriter he really liked it um, and and what um, and what Roy Scheider does which is so weird and gleeful and just I think he knew, like, he could peacock it because yeah. he's in the last 10 minutes and you can do whatever the hell you want at this point because we're acclimatized Absolutely. to whatever is going on. And then to have him just show up and do basically Fosse again, uh, just pop, literally appear in the film. Yeah, but although it must have been... I wonder if it was tricky for him to have to play... You know, because all the other characters get to sort of start at zero and go to go to 10. Yeah. But he, I mean, he is in the first reel as a doctor sure. prescribing medicine where he's, it's just a very minimal performance. You feel like he's barely even noticing Weller right. in the scene. He's well, giving him some drugs, writing a prescription and that's it. And then suddenly he has to appear as the same character somehow tied together with right. some sort of mannerisms or something. But yeah. Yeah. But be the lurid puppet master at the heart of it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, if you buy into the idea that this is uh, Lee's paranoid realization of things, then yeah, he's not the same. Like this is everybody in the last... 80 minutes of the movie is a version that he's just invented for himself to play with right. or to be distracted by or to console himself with. And the idea that, and this comes out of Burroughs, I think, the idea that you yourself are the result of somebody else screwing with you, either literally or figuratively, is very comforting to Bill Lee, not so much in the movie, because, oh, this is happening. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. this one more goddamn thing, and now it's... <laughs> Uh, not only have you witnessed the um, poor Kiki being consumed by the Julian Sands puppet, which I don't even, I don't even know <laughs> how to pull that off. It is such a, it's it's a Lovecraftian image, yeah, uh, of of this this osmosis consumption absorption of a human being by another human being that isn't really a human being anymore, and it's the one puppet effect that shouldn't work at all. But because of the way we're drawn into it, because we only get to glimpse it here and there through the bars and the light and the shadow, and then we're confronted with the puppet. And by that point, it's just like, yep, it's happening. Yeah. Um, and then to come out of that and get the Benway jokes is just like, oh, I'm the architect of your misfortune, uh, and I'm going to just introduce myself by unzipping another person. Why not? You can't go, you can't go big enough. Like, yeah. You cannot be big enough at that point. Yeah, well, that's it. That, that gives us the sort of exhausted, bleary Lee that comes out, that leaves and goes to Anexia, because after that, where do you go? Like, what do you, what can't you see? Right. What haven't you experienced at that point? You Absolutely, yeah. tunnel your way home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, it was, I mean, it was great to have the chance to pick it and then revisit it again after so many years and yeah. just kind of, uh, the cinematic pleasures that abound in that yeah. film. It really is, like, it feels like you're sort of pogo-sticking through a garden. Yeah, and a lot of really ugly things underneath it, but you keep moving fast enough, and you're not going to have to confront them. Uh, it's such a yeah. I I it flows, and then the details in Naked Lunch are more amorphous. They they I remember it. I know it all, mm-hmm. but things don't happen where I remember them happening. Right, they're all over the place. It's well, like you know, because Burroughs always said that the book should could be read in any order. Yeah, he's created a cut up. Yeah, of a film that hasn't like the film is fixed. The film hasn't changed, and yet it views differently in my head than any of the other Cronenberg films. It's the one that moves around the most. Yeah, in many senses, I mean, the, the chronology of it, I mean, in broad strokes, of course, is important. Mm-hmm. But in in the details, it's not, you know, it's not that important, really. Some, some of those scenes, you feel like they could have moved around, and the experience would be almost the same yeah. of watching the film, which is Burroughs. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's remarkable, again, how, how faithful it is, despite being completely... Uh, its own animal. Yeah. It manages to give you the experience of the experience without forcing you to experience it in exactly the same form. 
Yeah, which is uh, which is amazing. Yeah, and it's amazing how those films do because I was thinking about uh, uh, Dead Ringers uh, again, which is I think one that I've seen also five or six times. Mm-hmm. Just over the years, you end up bumping oh, into it on wherever and uh, and watching it again. There's a scene where the the one brother has that profane tirade. Oh yeah, uh, at the, accepting at, the award. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, at the lunch, and then the other brother comes and says, uh, clearly he's been celebrating, and who can blame him? Yeah. And it makes everything okay. Yeah. And there's polite applause that afterwards. Weird. That just always stuck with me. This moment of something about the authority of the white doctor yeah. with the British accent just making it go away. It is a uniquely Canadian scene, too. Like, everybody's really uncomfortable, but they still clap. Yeah. That that wouldn't happen in the States. There'd be more discomfort. Or in England, there'd be no... Like, it would just hang. But you're right. Yeah. It's the, the foreign presence which, you know, it goes back, and he's used it before, but never as the leads. Like Patrick McGowan in Scanners is the mm. mad scientist who still speaks with such authority, even though he's clearly crazy. Oliver Reed in The Brute. This is a long history for him. Mm-hmm. Well, and the doctor, the, the untrustworthy yeah. authority doctor. But these, but this is what happens in Dead Ringers. These are the heroes. Yeah. They're, these are the guys that you're stuck with, and you kind of have to root for them, because otherwise they're going to die all alone and sad. And <laughs> if we're there, at least it's not quite so bad. Right. And and in Naked Lunch, it's the same thing. Like, you're there with Bill Lee as he digs his way into whatever he's digging his way into, and then out of. But we're also there for the, the birth of this work of art, and we're witnessing it through the film, and then the film is the work of art as well. Like, it's a secondary construction that feels like the primary yeah I, yeah I, it's a rabbit hole i can't get out of it it's one of those things that continues to fascinate me how the hell did he pull this off that is how what it is right work? when you like it's one thing to sort of pick through it and unravel it and look at it but to to imagine the mind behind it that was seemingly so clear-headed yeah. oh yeah this is how i'll do it there's just like an unfathomably giant intellect behind this movie yeah, it's a construction job, but it's incredibly daunting. It's like building, I don't know, uh, a Gary building with no, like, how does that even stay up? I have no idea. Yeah. But I'm in it, and it's great. And it's great. I mean, and of course, Cronenberg, partly because he's Cronenberg, but just you know, a lot of movies that take you weird, dark places, you know, along the way, I find that there are moments where I stout. I start doubting the, the storyteller okay. and where they're taking me. Yeah. Uh, and not for one second does that occur in this film, right? I mean, you're just, it's all so confident. Yeah. So then the, the, the closing question is always the same on the show. What of the film, if anything, have you used yourself or been inspired by or just absorbed into your own DNA? Again, it was the thing that I mentioned at the beginning. It's the idea of the, of the adaptation. You know, you, you I, I've always believed, of course, that, that, um, that you, you, the filmmaker is the primary architect of, the, of, of, of any film. Mm. A lot of collaborators, but basically the filmmaker is the person who, who makes it. And, and in doing that, you take source material in the case of an adaptation and you, you just, you have to change it to make it work. And so I've always done that. And sometimes you rub people the wrong way when you do it. But I mean, naked lunch for me has always been the model yeah. of how, you know, you, you, you take it and you, you, turn it around you turn it upside down you take pieces of it and you throw bits away that don't seem to work and adapt it to the form that it's being adapted into uh and so yeah that's always a thing that i have sort of stuck to and and referred to and even in this film we you know we adapted a short film for borealis to make the feature um and even though it was my own short film you know i'm just very conscious of the fact that we're now turning it into a feature so everything that i maybe loved and had emotional attachments to in the short film gets discarded if it doesn't work really so for the adaptation what did you i don't want to go into spoiler territory for people who haven't seen the film but what what did you discover in the process of that adaptation was there anything that in the feature that germinated exclusively oh yeah from that tons of stuff oh yeah i mean you know the short film short, short films work very different they're very different narrative demands uh on their stories yeah, yeah. Uh, and on their characters and their character development and all that sort of stuff and so the short film was very much about kind of a hero father giving a gift to his daughter, this this road trip and, you know, where it ends up. And, and, and then, of course, the return, you know, the, the ending, how it sort of turns on itself. Right. That was sort of all part of the short film. But in the feature, you know, a, a sort of a valiant saint-like hero father... It's not. It's not going to work. I mean, that that kind of character doesn't work in a feature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's they're uninteresting, um, and so we completely had to take that character apart oh, okay. um, and reconstruct him as a very flawed, very difficult character that it takes us a long time to 
learn to get close to. Yeah, I have not seen the short, and I'm now I'm really curious to see how he would have been no, totally different because that totally different. Yeah, guy. nothing in the film would lead me to believe that he could have been saint like. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a redemption story, if anything. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And but, you know, and so yeah, and it's it, and it very much as the the author of it, uh, you know, as the director. Um, when I was making the short film, I was the girl. Okay. Right. I mean. Sure. It, yeah. And. But when I'm making the feature, I'm the dad. All right. Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it, actually. Because, yeah, that's... I mean, the focus in the film, in the feature, is definitely the two of them. But it's... One character is the agitator. is the, the person who makes things happen, and the yeah. other one is much more passive. I mean, she does things... I'm, now I'm spoiling it. <laughs> uh, one character does things from... Oh, I can't even do it without gender pronouns. Um, <laughs> she does things that further her own story, but he does things that further both of theirs. Yeah. I think that's fair. For sure. Um, wow. Cool. Well, I want to see the short, too. Yeah, so I think it's it's on iTunes. All it's, right. It's findable. It's out there. Also titled Borealis? called Blind. Blind people. Go find Blind on iTunes and go find Borealis uh, theatrically now, right? In theaters, yeah, starting April 8th. Excellent. My thanks to Sean Garrity, whose new film Borealis opens in Toronto this Friday, April 8th, and expands across the country in the coming weeks. You can also find My Awkward Sexual Adventure and Blood Pressure on Netflix Canada right now. You can find Sean on Twitter at Garrity Winnipeg, all one word, and you can find Naked Lunch in a customarily excellent special edition on Blu-ray and DVD from the Criterion Collection, although it's an import in Canada. That's ironic. It's also available for rental and purchase on iTunes and Google Play, but only in Canada. And if you want to see those early student films we mentioned, Stereo is included on Criterion's Scanners, and Crimes of the Future is on Criterion's The Brood, both in new digital restorations. You can also find standard definition transfers of both Stereo and Crimes of the Future on the Blue Underground Blu-ray edition of Cronenberg's Fast Company. I know, it's complicated. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. And if you want to leave a review on iTunes, this week's phrase is Mugwump... No, scratch that. Let's go with Bug Powder. It's safer for everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.